What's going on, everybody? This is Jerome Moore, host and creator of Deep Dish Conversations. And firstly, I want to say thank you for all of support and thank you for exploring the perspectives of social change with me on this platform. I want to encourage you all to like, subscribe, and follow us on YouTube and on your favorite podcast listening platform. And make sure you give us a five-star rating if you're loving the Deep Dish Conversations. I appreciate all of the support again. I hope you all enjoy this episode. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Deep Dish Conversations. Today, we're here with Tim Wise, Arthur, speaker, anti-racism activist, and most importantly, Nashvilleian. Welcome, Tim. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, how's your life been? Um, so much going on. You know, I feel like, I, I'm sure like a lot of people, uh, semi-hibernation for mm-hmm. five, six months. I mean, I really have not, uh, with the exception of a handful of times, been anywhere substantial since March. So I felt like a lot of people in this sort of semi-lockdown mode watching as, um, you know, sort of the world burns a little bit and, right. and the country. Um, right. And I don't mean that necessarily literally, but certainly figuratively, uh, politically and everything else. This right. is sort of you know, 175,000 people have died from COVID. We have right. this amazing uh, uprising for racial justice. And all of it is happening in spite of, or one may even say because of, the lockdown and what that has done to sort of focus our attention. So it's, right. it's been fascinating, you know, to watch, um, uh, frightening, but also, you know, inspiring to watch some um, of what's going on. So I'm doing all right. Dropped a kid off at college, hoping that yes. she didn't have to, well, I mean, you know, they say they're, they're after Thanksgiving, they're sending them home until January, Right. but we're just wanting them to get to Thanksgiving. I have, right. I, I have real doubts, you know, right. that, that, schools are going to make it. We've already seen a bunch of schools open and they're like, oh, whoops, we weren't ready, you know, right. and then they get to close back down. So right. we'll see. It's just been sort of day to day. So uh, one of the first questions I have for you, Tim, is yeah. what role did maybe faith, family, friends, your community play into your journey like that you're doing now, especially around being an uh, anti-racism activist? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I guess all of that had some role to play. Family a huge role. Uh, I've talked about this a lot, but you know, I grew up in Nashville and, uh, and I was born in 1968. I uh, went to preschool at Tennessee State uh, in the early childhood ed program at TSU. And, and the reason that I did that, I didn't live in North Nashville. I didn't live um, around TSU. I lived in Green Hills, but, uh, but my mom made the very deliberate decision to send me to TSU for preschool. And this would have been around 1972. So about three, almost four, um, get ready to start a preschool program there. And she did that, you know, very, very deliberately wanted me to have a more integrated environment, wanted me to not always be the norm in the room. You know, yeah. I was going to be starting public school um, a couple of years after that. And she knew that those public schools had just really become integrated. You know, right. Nashville public schools didn't really fully integrate until 1971, uh, you know, 27 years after, or 17 years, excuse me, after, after, after Brown v. Board. Right. So, by 1974, when I was going to be starting first grade, she wanted me to have a context for integrated education. And so at TSU, you know, I was one of only three not black kids right. in the class, which right. and the women that ran the program were black women, which right. also, you know, made a difference in terms of just respect. socializing me to respect black wow. authority. Yeah. Right. So I think those decisions were really instrumental because it meant that when I saw black kids who were my friends now being treated differently, not just yeah. people that. I'd read about or like abstractions, right? But these were actually friends. These were, these were people that I had some relationship with, see them mistreated in the schools, that affected me in a way that, you know, probably wouldn't have if I hadn't known them. Um, and years later when I'm working as a community organizer in public housing and black women are the, the voices in that community, I'm 
I've learned to respect black women right. going back to when I was a little kid. So that was a big piece. Um, the faith piece is interesting. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm Jewish in terms of I was raised Jewish and I went to, to Temple till I was about 13 and then I dropped out of Hebrew school. So I'm a Hebrew school dropout, <laughs> which my rabbi I'm sure is very proud of. Um, I wouldn't say that faith per se had a, had a huge role, but I think being Jewish certainly um, in this town, which right. is a very, um, you know, there's th on every four-way stop, it's three churches, churches. And, and a Walgreens on the right. other one or whatever, <laughs> right. you know. But um, so you definitely grow up with a sense of otherness right. uh, if you're in the South right. uh, in, and you're Jewish. And I think at the time that I was growing up here, there were probably only about 5,000 Jews maybe in Nashville max. And it, it may not even be that much more now, I don't know. Right. But you certainly had a sense of otherness. I mean, I remember being treated very differently in public schools by teachers who thought it was appropriate to try to make us pray in, in, in their tradition. First right. of all, it was not appropriate to make us pray at all. Right. The Supreme Court had already said that in 1962, but they tried. Right. And so I remember always feeling a bit like an outsider, but luckily, and, and this is really critical, because I think I'd had that TSU experience and I could see the way my black friends were treated as outsiders. Right. I didn't get so wrapped up in my otherness that I couldn't see other people's otherness, right? right. So I, I could actually empathize in a way because I was having this outsider experience right. and that gave me a little bit of insight into the fact that my black friends were being tracked right. into the low level track. They were being right. disciplined more harshly. So I was catching hell, but they were too. Right. And I was able to see that probably because of that. Hey everyone, this is Tim Wise. Check out Deep Dish Conversations on YouTube. So this is this is your first time here at Geno's. It is. It is. I think I ate at Geno's in Chicago years ago. Okay. Um, but it's the first time that I've had it here, and, and really didn't even realize it was here, or that it was connected to the Geno's. From right. in fact, when I looked it up on on uh, when I googled it the other day, it sent me to the Michigan Avenue in <laughs> Chicago. I'm like, wait a minute. Now hold on. I want to make sure I'm doing right, and then I figured out what was going on. So, life dream coming true. Eating mm -hmm. pizza and talking about. Mm -hmm social issues in Nashville. Can't ask for any any better situation. Than yeah, for that. real. How's the pizza tasting? It's for you? really good. It's really, really good. Yeah. All right, so you mentioned that you was a community organizer right. and my myself went through community organizing training training with Lamelia, National yeah. Leadership <clears throat> training and it's it's different. It's the artistry. Yeah. It's about building power with uh, not only within yourself and your pathway to power, but also building power in leaders and those who right. may not feel like they're leaders. Right. Um, so how was that for you being a community organizer? Well, there were a lot of things about it that were, I mean, that had been critical to, right. to my development and the work that I do. Ultimately, I didn't, I only did it for about 15 to 18 months, but it was an incredible learning experience because I had to learn, and it's particularly humbling for white men that become organizers, because the thing about organizing, as you know, having been trained to do it and having done it, right, is that it's really not about you. Right. It's really not about your voice. Right. You're trying to help other people find their voice, and right. you're trying to get them to discover the power and the capabilities that they have to exercise autonomy in their community and self-determination. And when you're a white man, in this country right. where you're really encouraged to think that it is about your voice, right? So you go in and you fix it, right. or you go in and you offer the solution, or right. you go in and you tell them what you think. Right. And as an organizer, you have to have a very, very different mentality, right? Um, first, you know, I, I worked with an organization that 
was a family and children's advocacy group that was rooted in anti-racism mm. training from the People's Institute for Survival and Beyond in New Orleans. And so everybody that went through this had to have explicit anti-racism background. Okay. So, so which, is, which is different because not all organizing models emphasize racism. A lot of them, I mean, they emphasize economic injustice, of course, but sometimes race is on the periphery. Ours was very explicit, which was incredibly important for me. Um, secondly, you know, the, the, the adage within organizing is you, you don't go until you're asked in, and when you're asked in, you go. Right. And so for me, I had to be shepherded through by, I was working in public housing communities in New Orleans, and, and it would have made absolutely zero sense for me to just roll up in this community and say, I'm here to help. Because people would have been like, of course you are. <laughs> you know, the only, the, literally the only white folks that looked like me that they saw were either cops or social workers, right? right? So they're not gonna trust me. Right. Only way that I could gain the trust of the community and interact with the community in a productive way right. was someone who was a resident in the community who worked with our organization, right. brought me in, introduced me to people, vouched right. for me, right. and then I had to demonstrate that I was trustworthy over the course of time. And it took right. a minute, you know? Right. But, but so I had to subordinate my ego a lot and it was a really good experience. I learned the importance of, of seeing wisdom in these spaces where I knew it existed. It's like, you didn't have to tell me there was wisdom in those communities, but when you're actually hearing it, when you're actually right. hearing folks that have high school diploma or less, right. in many cases, explaining the class system, explaining race right. better than the college course that you took two right. years ago or right. five years ago, right? right? Then you start to realize how, uh, how, how, how much we're missing as a society by not tapping into that wisdom. And so I know, well, especially when it comes to anti-racism, you go out, train, talk, speak, and try to help others have a better understanding of how they can possibly correct their anti-racism thoughts, biases, yeah. or whatever. What has been some of the biggest challenges for you in that process um, in trying to understand it better so you can help others also understand it better in your journey? I mean, I think the biggest challenge is um, particularly, again, as a white person in right. the work and as a white man in the work, where you're encouraged to rely on your own judgment right. and to uh, rely on your own insights and your own wisdom, it, the challenge, it's not as much of a challenge now, but it was right. early on, right, was being able to step back from that and realize, okay, I have a, I have a very important lane in this work, and, right. and white people, I think, have a very important lane as allies or whatever term we choose to use, but, but it's also a relatively narrow lane. It's right. not the lane that says, let me tell you what the solution is, right. right? It's not the lane that says, hey, let me be the main voice that you listen to. It's right. about figuring out, okay, how can I use my voice? Right. How can I use the privilege that I have to be listened to right. in a way that's constructive and in a way that uplifts the voices of other people who are normally ignored, which right. is, again, part of that organizing piece, right? right? Like, if I can use my voice, I'll do it. When I was an organizer, I would go and lobby <clears throat> um, for legislation also. So right. I would use my voice, like in Baton Rouge, I would go and testify for legislation, or right. I would get on TV, or I would do some stuff on the radio. Right. But then I was also making sure that the voices of that people in that community were being heard. Right. Right. So you have to you have to learn the both end of it, which I think is, uh, you know, particularly for white men, both can sometimes end. be a challenge. Yeah. And so, this is one of the most exciting things I'm, I'm interested in learning about you is why, like, white man growing up right. in Nashville, Tennessee, 
right. um, poli sci major, probably could have been anything else that you wanted to make, you know, but buttloads of money, right, doing whatever you wanted to do, right? Why anti-racism activism? Why this work? Well, you know, part of it is that upbringing that I mentioned. Part of it is that background of, of having those early relationships and that early awareness that was the result of my mom making that decision to send me to TSU. It was also, I think, you know, I, I, early on, as I was coming up and I had these close connections, um, I saw certain things right. that, that, that just stick with you. And yeah. for me, you know, it was, I was 10 or 11 right. and I was playing baseball. I played ball here in Nashville. Um, it was funny, you know, I, I went to Hebrew school with all the other Jewish kids and they were all playing at the JCC and I was right. playing ball at the Y. So I was playing basketball at the Y and I was real good until you had to be tall. <laughs> so after about, after about sixth grade, I was done. You know, I was real good up until right. about fifth grade, right. but I was really good at baseball. Right. And so the same guys that I played basketball with is in the, in the, in the same league, right. same coach. Right. Um, we had a baseball team. And so I would say that team was about 13 guys and probably nine were black kids and four were white. And we went out to play a scrimmage one weekend um, out, of, out of town, like out in Jolton, which right. isn't really that far, but right, 25 right. minutes or something like that. But it was Jolton. But it is Jolton. <laughs> and this is Jolton 1980. In the, up in the mountains, Jolton. Yeah. This is Jolton in 1980. So it's a semi-rural part of the Nashville area. Right. And we roll in, not you know really thinking anything of it. We go out there, we're going to play a ball game. We're right. going to play a scrimmage against this team. And we showed up. We only had like eight guys show up because somebody got sick. So we didn't really have enough to field the whole team, but we were like, look, we still want to play. It's just a scrimmage. We'll, we'll collapse left field and right field just to left and right center, and we'll play. And y'all can play nine if you want. We don't care. We just want the practice, right? right? And then they were like, we're not going to do it. And they didn't want to play. And so they, but that wasn't really what the deal was. Right. It wasn't really that. Right. And we learned that very quickly because as we were leaving, these guys, not all of them, but a sev several of the players on the other team surrounded our car. We had a coach that would just like, jam all of us in his car and right. you know no seat belts no safety right. nothing we just had like nine guys eight guys right. and they surrounded the car they're yelling at us they're they're, they're calling the black kids the n-word they're calling the white kids n-word lovers and all that and i'm 11 right. or whatever and and i'm seeing this and so for me that was the first time that i had really that seen you. that level of overt racism right. against my friends now and, right. and and teammates this wasn't some abstract thing i read about right right this was happening right in front of me and having white people tell me you as a white person have crossed this line right. and now you're on that side of the line and right. we're going to make you pay for it right. right so to me that stuff i mean there's a reason you remember those things because right. right. how many things happen to you when you're 11 you don't remember them right but that stuck with me so that didn't necessarily make me want to do this as a career. I mean, that's, right. a, that's a longer discussion, right. right? But for me, that was always going to be in the back of my mind that, right. that I had some obligations right. um, uh, because of those early experiences. And then when I graduated from college, you know, I was in Louisiana. David Duke, former Klan leader, right. white supremacist, neo-Nazi, was, was running for U.S. Senate and governor, and I was involved in the campaigns against him. Right. And at the end of that, even though he lost, he got six out of ten white people to vote for him. So right. that's one of those moments where you realize... Once again, just like those boys in Jolton, right? Right. Who, who I came to, rather than hate them, right. which would have been very easy, and I did for a while, mm -hmm. but rather I came to really see them, like where did they learn that, right? right. They learned that at home. Right. They learned, so they were the victims of the collateral damage of the, the conditioning of their parents, right. and their parents were the collateral damage of the conditioning of their, their parents. parents. So, so I came to have this, not, not sympathy, 
but compassion for the fact that white folks are being damaged by our own mindset of white supremacy. And then when you see 675,000 white people in Louisiana vote for a guy they know is a Nazi, now you really understand, like, that's pretty heavy, because I know that they're not all Nazis. But they're voting for a dude they know is. They're like, yeah, I know he's a Nazi, but gosh, you know, I really do like what he has to say about welfare recipients. Wow, really? Because he's a Nazi. You heard that, right? They're like, yeah, yeah, I know, but I really like what he said about affirmative action. Like, (laughs) yeah, but he's a Nazi. You understand that, right? right? Yeah, yeah, I understand, but, you know. And so that's that moment where you go, okay, I have some work to do. Right. Not to save black folks in Louisiana. Black folks in Louisiana were clear, like, we're going to stop him. Y'all clearly are not. We will, you know, so you're welcome. We're going to save y'all from yourself. But the question was, who was going to save us? Right. Right? The question Mm. was not who was going to save those black kids that were in the car with me. They were going to save themselves. If they had to get out with baseball bats and defend themselves, they would have done it. The question was, who's going to save those white children whose parents taught them that hatred? Mm. That's my job, see? Mm. That's certainly not your job. You you can't liberate white people. You you got to just stay alive and keep moving yourself right the only people that can liberate white people from this nonsense that we've done to others and to ourselves are other white people all right so i know that had to be a a really interesting you know car ride back home uh, leaving jolton and um i wanted to follow up with you know in your work what seems to be the why for a lot of your, you know, guests when you speak of the people that don't want to bring you in. What are their why? Specifically white people. Yeah, yeah. Do they have a why? Is it one of those things like, oh, you know, I just, it seems right. It seems like the right thing to do. I think that it's different for every institution. You know, right. I think in the 25, 26 years that I've been on the road speaking to audiences about these issues and doing education around these issues, probably, you know, up until recently when everything has been virtual, I would say 70% of the events have been colleges, universities, and even high schools. And I would say for them, you know, you have some that I think are really trying to create anti-racist space and really um, do do real institutional change. And then there are others who just, you know, they have so many speakers a year come in and they got to fill a slot and check a box, right? Right, right. And, And you have some, I mean, I remember in the early days I would get booked by you know, the campus activities people. And it, I would go to these conferences. They have the National Association of Campus Activities. Mm-hmm. And so you would go and you would do a 20-minute, like, short version of your talk. Right. But they would put you on the stage and then, like, so you would do your 20 minutes. So I'd be up there talking about white privilege and racism for 20 minutes. Right. And then literally right after me is a stand-up comic. <laughs> and then before me was a dude playing the guitar. Great right? Right? And so, or it's a magician. Or it was a dude <laughs> trying to teach, like kids how to kiss correctly like that was literally one of them right and so you go to these and you would just be like what what the hell is this you know no no offense to i mean look i'm all i get it like you need to have comics on campus that's fun you got to have musicians you got to have magicians and and musicians and i guess you need people to teach you how to kiss i don't know but what i do know is when you put a when you when you have the folk singer and then the white privilege guy and then the clown that comes out and makes things disappear you know you just realize like you don't really know why they're bringing you and then and then they would bid on you after they'd be like okay we're bringing you know fritz the clown or whatever and we're gonna bring tim wise and then you you sort of go uh i'm gonna go do it but i don't know that it's gonna make any difference i I just imagine that transition like yes white privilege white supremacy now we're gonna show you how to well it got to where i had to get up and do like 10 minutes of comedy (laughs) i had to do 10 minutes of comedy just to put people at ease because they just had a comic and now i'm gonna come on it wah wah 
oppression. <laughs> you know, and so, and so you have to you have to um, figure out segues. And so my, my what I found was my presentation started to become more and more comedic. Right. Which I mean, on the one hand, okay, if that allows you to hear it, but on the other hand, that's not really what I came for. Right. To do twenty minutes of white privilege comedy. Right. You know, right, so right. so I had to move a bit away from that. And over the years, I have found that most of the institutions at this point you know, that bring me in, really you're trying. Right. I think their motivations are good, 99 times out of 100. There's right. always that one that you know is still just checking a box. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm sure I'm not the only one that has that experience. I'm sure that, that, that black and brown folks who were brought in to speak about these issues could tell you the same stories, that right. they get in there and they don't really know right. whether somebody is, is really wanting to change things or whether they just want, you know, gosh, wasn't that interesting, right. you know? And then right. next week they'll bring somebody that argues the exact opposite of what you just said or right. something. So you just never know. Um, I, I try not to spend too much time worrying about people's motives right. uh, unless I really suspect that they are bad faith. I just figure, look, if you want to hear about this, I'm going to come and I'm going to talk to you right. and I'm going to tell you the same thing no matter what I think your motive is right. and you can either take it or leave it. Right. What have you learned about yourself during this journey? I know, you know, you do a lot of speaking, yeah. um, a lot of good work, a lot of writing, but what are some of the things, maybe one or two things that you have just just figured out that you know about yourself that you didn't know, mm -hmm. um, and it can be something as recent as yeah. last month or something as, as recent five years ago. Um, you know, I think I've just I've I have found out that uh, well, it, it is demonstrated to me that I don't have a great work ethic. Oh, okay. Um, and people think that's weird because I write a lot of articles and I've written right. eight books and I give, you know, all these talks. But the truth is I'm, I'm really not a very hard worker. And I'm not trying to say that like as a matter of false modesty, but what I've just discovered about myself is I, I feel sometimes like I, uh, and which is a, a really interesting revelation because it suggests that as much as I've accomplished right. not having a good work ethic, right. what's that about? Well, right. that's a lot about white privilege right. and male privilege. Right. And I'm not saying that I'm not good at the things that I do, but right. I just feel like sometimes I find myself not as focused as I wish I, I, I were. Why do you feel that is? I don't know. I, I don't know if it's, uh, that may also have something to do with upbringing. You know, right. I, I grew up in a very, sort of very different home. Like my dad was an actor and a stand-up comic who was unemployed most of the time. You know, like he right. made a living, but not a great living. Right. So I think I learned like, oh, work is optional. You right. know, <laughs> like, I mean, you know, like you Maybe don't have do to work, right? Yeah, 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 right, I'll do it or not, you know? Right. And, and luckily I happen to have a skill set that allows me to, to still make a difference and, and right. contribute and do well in spite of that, but, I, but it, it bothers me that I don't have a better work ethic because I feel like these are issues that you need a good work ethic around. Right. Like I need to be focused and sometimes I feel like I'm not and right. it drives me nuts, but I've learned to live with it. I mean, it is, I'm 52 years old. I am right. who I am at this right. point. Uh, the second thing, you know, is that um, I've learned is that no matter how hard you try to get away from your uh, damage, because right. we're all damaged, uh, right. we all come from dysfunction, we just some people are more honest about it than right. others, that no matter how much you try to outrun it, it it'll catch you. So right. you just have to sort of um, know how to deal with that and know how to, to, to talk about that. Right. And so for me, you know, growing up in dysfunction, my thing was I didn't want to repeat some of the mistakes in terms of the way that I interact with kids and my own children and my wife and 
and that my dad did right. and and i and i i've done i've avoided some of those things but right. some of those things i you know i have fallen into as well and and i find myself traveling even though i remember i don't ever want to be away from my kids this much and right. away from my wife this much because my dad was always on the road right and yet i you You're know it's what i do right, <laughs> right and right. so you sort of you we do become right. for good and for bad right. our 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 role models in certain right. ways. And, and I think you just have to embrace that reality and try to minimize the damage that you do. Right. So that's been a very revealing thing, just sort of psychologically for me, is, right. is to sort of come to terms with the damage and be able to excavate it and pinpoint it and say, right. yeah, I know why I did that thing. Right. And I need to figure out a way not to do that or be right. like that or act that way or right. you know, speak that way to right. people. Um, so it's been very humbling. You know? I know you, you mentioned earlier about the impact that your mom had, yeah. you know, on the work that you're doing now and putting you in a situation so you can better see and under th understand yeah. things, uh, especially from a, um, being a, a white man in uh, America that you probably wouldn't have been able to notice or recognize or see mm. if you yeah. have not made those decisions. For sure. What role did your father play or didn't play in yeah. kind of what you're doing now and how you see things? Well, you know, I mean, uh, again, I, I, I want to give credit and on look at the good and the bad of all, right. all this um and it's a complicated relationship i have with both my parents actually but my, you know my father on the one hand look i make my living running my mouth i make my living performing in a way right when i get up and speak that's a performance well my ability to do that and do that effectively i'm sure owes a lot to the fact that my dad was a stand-up comic and an actor for most of his professional life and right. so I, I got to where my oral communication skills, you know, come from that. So, right. so if it weren't for him, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing, I'm sure. And, and um, at least not in the way that I'm doing it. On the other hand, there was a lot of dysfunction there. My dad was an uh, alcoholic and addict um, for, is in recovery now for many, many years, but growing up certainly was not. And so I dealt with a lot of that chaos and a lot of that isolation that comes with that chaos. I was an only child. And so I was dealing with that dysfunction and like i said i think that is the kind of thing that then when you have your own family right. and you're trying to figure out how to be a better man or a better husband or a better father or just a better human being right. you will sometimes fall back into the only modeling that you ever saw right. even when you know that that's not effective good modeling right exactly. so there's a, a lot of that i struggle with that all the time um and again some of those struggles i win some of those struggles i've lost but right. they're they're ongoing they're constant and that's not just me that's for anyone right. so i think that that my father's implicated for good and for bad in who I've become. Now, politically, ideologically, philosophically, my mom and dad were on the same page around these things. So, right. so my mom made that sort of active decision to send me to Tennessee State, but right. my mom and dad were on the same page politically right. as I was growing up about issues. You know, my right. mom and dad were both a little bit too young right. to have been activist in the civil rights era, right. but my dad was very progressive, came from a progressive family. My mom actually, came from a very conservative family. So she was the one that was more rebelling against her folks. Right. Um, my dad is the Jewish side of the family and they were much more liberal, much more progressive. That's not to say though that they had all their stuff together. Right. I mean, you know, and, and, I've, and I've talked about that as well in a lot of my work that there was still a lot of blind spots right. that even that side of the family had, you right. know? Um, and, and so um, I would say that, that you know, in some, in some really good ways, both my parents are implicated right. and in some problematic ways, right. they're implicated in who I became. Yeah. Last question for you, uh, Tim, what brings you joy? Um, I mean, 
My family, for sure. Um, watching my kids develop, you know, it, it, as frightening as it is to see how quickly that's happened. Right. You know, I think about, you know, when the uprising touched off this summer and my right. kids were so animated, not because I've, I'm, I've not been that dad that sits right. them down and is like, right. you're going to follow in your father's footsteps because I hate that stuff, right? right. Um, but they know what I do. Right. They've followed it all of their lives. Right. Um, they're aware of it. We've had conversations about race. We, we started looking at Disney films and breaking them down for like racial content. And right. I'm sure my kids hated me for that. They're like, I'm just trying to watch the damn movie. And you want to talk about race and class and gender. I just want to watch Cinderella. Dr. Kennedy just dropped anti-racist baby. Like, right, this is, right, right. So I mean, so, so I learned how to talk about it with my kids. And, and I didn't know if it was going to take. You don't really know. Because right. again, I didn't want to browbeat them. Right. But then when the movement touched off, right, watching my kids talking about this in really like, you know, amazingly advanced ways. So when it touched off, they weren't quite 19 and 17, they were 18 and 16. And they were talking about these subjects in ways that I was not savvy, as savvy at 18 and 16 to talk about them. Right. They had a real sense of, of sort of white responsibility. Right. What is white allyship? Like they were engaging those conversations. We were having incredible conversations. So that gave me joy because I felt like you know, I've helped to create these two children right. who are able to go out into the world right. and really speak with some sense of confidence right. about issues that I think a lot of their peers haven't, right. don't have that capacity to do. And so it, it made me feel good as a father. Right. It made me feel good about our family unit that we haven't, that we haven't browbeat them with it so much that they're like, to hell with that. Right. That's what dad's about. I'm going to be a skinhead. You know, like that was always my fear, right? I remember my kids were like, <laughs> I mean, honestly, God, I, my kids would say things like, you know, they're both daughters and they would say like, I always worried. It's like, well, you know, they would say, what will, what would, you know, anything we could do that would, that would really make you mad. I remember the first time my oldest kid did something she shouldn't have done. I'm not going to say what it was, but right. she's like, I have to tell you something. Right. And that was, my brain went, you know, my brain didn't go to like, having a drink at a party or, or being someplace you wasn't supposed to be or breaking curfew or any of the other things it could be. Right. My mind went to like, are you telling me your boyfriend's a Nazi? <laughs> you know, cause that's going to be a deal breaker. Right, like right. that's the one thing that I right. might withhold love, you know? <laughs> and, and, and then, then when she told me what it was, it was so minor by comparison. Right. I'm like, Oh, well, at least your boyfriend's not a Nazi. You know, I thought you told me your boyfriend was in Charlottesville with tiki torches yelling white power or some shit. You know, like that was my thing. So by comparison, I felt pretty good about it. Um, and, and I felt like, okay, that's a joyful moment that your right. kids respect, even though you have arguments with your children, they right. all do. But, but I felt like my kids have enough respect that they did listen. Right. They did listen to some things and they did pay attention. And that's right. a very joyous thing, you know. Tim, where can people find your books, your podcasts, learn more about you and some of the work that you've done? Right. Um, well, I, most of my writing is at medium.com. Uh, folks can search under my name. My Twitter is at Tim Jacob Wise. Okay. My Facebook is also available under that. I don't post as much there as I used to, mostly on Twitter now. Um, Speak Out with Tim Wise is the podcast. You can find information about that at Patreon. You can find that on Instagram okay. at Speak Out Tim Wise okay. is the Instagram handle. Uh, same. I, actually, I think the Instagram maybe speak out with Tim Wise. The Twitter handle is speak out Tim Wise. Okay. And um, my books, of course, you can order those on Amazon, on Powell's. Uh, get them at local bookstores. You can have them delivered to a local bookstore here. Uh, I've got another one that'll be coming out in December, essay collection Perfect. called Dispatches from the Race War that'll be out um, uh, later this year. Perfect.
Tim Wise, thank you for your time. You bet. Thank you. Thank you.